Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the federal election campaign heads into top gear with one week to go until the official polling. What should we be watching for in the final days? Well, we'll talk about that. Another new variant of interest named Mu has been detected here in Ontario. How worried should we be? And anti-vaxxer protests at hospitals are being called out by several groups. That includes NDP leader Andrea Horvath, who's calling on Premier Ford to stop the mobs. She's proposing we create safety zones around hospitals and other businesses where protests have established and has escalated into harassment. Dr. Amit Aria joins us to discuss all of that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about one week from today, a voter day, election day, uh, for, uh, well, to find out just what we're going to do, who the prime minister is going to be, and whether it's going to be a minority or majority government. Uh, the numbers haven't changed a whole lot in the last couple of days, uh, and uh, I'm wondering about people's attitudes. As a matter of fact, if we look at some of the overnight numbers, uh, we see that uh, the liberals continue to hold a slight lead. Uh, Justin Trudeau continues to be uh, the preferred uh choice for prime minister among others and uh, as you might have expected in this last full weekend of, uh, of uh, campaigning and going back and forth well they were taking shots at each other uh mr trudeau slammed conservative leader aaron o'toole on his stance on gun control aaron o'toole specifically made a promise to the gun lobby that he would reverse our ban on military style assault weapons that's why the gun lobby is busy out there campaigning to make sure that people vote for Aaron O'Toole so that he can keep his promise to them. That's not what Canadians want. So is it having any impact at all when we look at some of these numbers and uh, what can we expect to see, well, one week from uh, today? Uh, glad to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. Do you see any trends here? I, I, I know we've seen the numbers pretty much the same, give or take a one or two percentage points. But uh, for the last couple of weeks and through the uh, the Sunday numbers that we looked at here, the Liberals start starting now to develop a lead. Uh, are there any conclusions you can draw so far from what we've seen? I mean, we can see that it's a pretty, like this is a sort of two-way race here where, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to see a big momentum takeover where one party becomes really out front, right? Like, I think if that was going to happen, it would have happened. At this point, we're past the debates, we're past the point of of platforms, even the costing is all done. And so now it's about getting the vote out and about the leaders really kind of being present in the ridings that they think might flip. But I don't think we're going to see any, you know, major takeover from one party to another. And so then the question will be, you know, who actually comes out to vote? How effective are the parties going to be at mobilizing, particularly any new voters for them, right? Like to be able to kind of really change the terrain by introducing voters that maybe have never voted before. So now it's like down to the wire. This is a stress time where they're all like, okay, how can we make sure that the machine gets everybody out? And and that's one of the uh, the unsung parts of campaigns, isn't it? Really, that's the the stuff that's going on in the back rooms to get, well to get the vote out. You know, it's one thing to get a lawn sign put on somebody's property, and it's another one if you know when you're knocking on somebody's door to say, yeah, I'll, I'll vote for you probably, but to actually physically get them out there to vote is is a, a huge enterprise. Oh yeah, and I mean, like how you might have to try a few times, right? Like you might have to go to somebody's door more than once to make sure you've got their vote. Then you've got to go again to make sure they show up and vote. Like it can be enormously you know, hard work for a party, for a candidate, a leader to be able to mobilize even one vote. And when we're thinking about doing this across 338 ridings, 
and they're really, really focusing again on those those writings that they think are possibly going to flip in their favor. It's so stressful. And then in the afterward, you know, you you can imagine people sitting there thinking, oh, you know, if we had done one more thing, if we had tried, you know, maybe it would have changed things. Like it's so it's so raw and frustrating. But that's where they're at now. I think it's just sort of making sure that people come out as they said they would. There's always a fear. I think you and I talked about this uh, just after the writ was dropped. Uh, once the campaign starts, that uh, the people in those writing associations, the grassroots, the ones that are literally knocking on the doors, uh, that they don't screw up uh, because that can barely drag a campaign down if they have to. All of a sudden, the leader has to go on defense. And we've seen a few examples of that already. We had the, uh, the liberal candidate in, uh, from New Brunswick, I guess, last week that was talking about a housing tax, and, and you know, the, they said, "No, no, no, I don't know where it got that's that's wrong." Uh, Mr. O'Toole was dogged over the weekend by. A couple of uh, candidates one of them he had to drop because of uh, alleged uh, uh, well islamophobic uh, comments that were made some time ago uh, and on and on it goes and then of course there is the uh, soon to be uh, published book about from uh, jody wilson raybould uh, which is an expose by all intents and purposes if you to read some of the excerpts from the globe and mail do these things really have an impact on voters or have they pretty much made up their mind anyway yeah, it's it's interesting. Like I think, like for the parties, they they want the focus to be the leader. They want the focus to be the party brand, and the r- role of the candidates is, you know, definitely to kind of knock on doors, get that brand out, right, and carry the flag for the party, not to become the story yourself, particularly if the story is negative. And so I think, you know, it's possible. Like it it, it comes down to so many things, like whether or not um, a gaffe by a candidate is enough to turn a riding for a party really depends on how bad was it? Um, is the person an incumbent? How, how was the leader trending in the riding? You know, were you, was this a riding in play at all? Like we can, there have definitely been times where candidates have done, you know, have had some explaining to do for something, mm-hmm. but the riding still went in the party's favor because the, the, the devotion to the party, the devotion to the leader is something that kind of takes over. And when people get asked in those surveys, you know, what kind of, what directs your vote, the candidate is, is not normally the thing that kind of puts you over the edge, right? Like your, your brand, the party's brand, the leader, the issues at the time, all weigh more heavily on, on a voter's mind usually than the actual candidate. Now that said, if a candidate's behavior or past behavior reflects so badly on the brand that you start rethinking it, then, you know, then you might, the party might have an issue. But that's a judgment call, I think, that the leader and the party will make on a case-by-case basis. The Wilson-Raybould thing is rather interesting. Uh, the, the Globe and Mail, of course, uh, put some stuff out, and it, it was great fodder for a number of the columnists. I'm sure you read a number of those over the weekend, Doctor, as I did, mm-hmm. uh, about what was going on. And, and now, of course, the story is, well, what kind of an impact is this going to have? I talked to a, a, an old, experienced uh, political uh, war horse from a long time ago over the weekend who simply said, look, at, uh, first of all, SNC-Lavalin was not a factor in the last election. It's not likely to be in this one. Yeah. All, all this thing did, I, I'm just paraphrasing what he told me, he says, if you hated Trudeau, you're going to hate him again. And if you didn't care much about it before, you're not really going to change your mind there. Is, is that pretty much the lay of the land? That's how I see it. I absolutely think that, you know, this is a story that we know already. This happened, you know, two years plus ago. And I 100% agree. Um, if the 2019 election didn't turn on SNC Lavalin, this one's not going to either. We've had a pandemic since then. Um, and I mean, it doesn't mean that people won't read the book. It doesn't mean that people mm-hmm. won't engage in the media coverage of it. It doesn't mean that they, you know, like that's all that's all well and good. And the prime minister will get questions about it. It will take up space in the campaign, that's for sure. But I think that people have made up their minds on that. People have made up their minds on the We Charity thing, right? Like people don't go back 
looking to, you know, people don't carry that stuff around with them forever. And at this point, when you're looking at the choices in front of you, you know, you, it's just not, this is not going to be an S&P Live One election. And plus, back when that all happened, like, it happened in a way that was playing out, you know, in a very dramatic way on a daily basis in Parliament. Like, she was in before Parliamentary Committee. So was Jerry Butts. So was Michael Wernick. And the parties were all picking it up and making it a thing. Aaron O'Toole doesn't want to make his campaign about S&P Lavalin. Like, sure, you know, use it to throw another dart at Trudeau about his ethics, but it's not going to be a big thing. And by the way, this is a conservative guy that was warhorse, and he was just trying to be pragmatic about it. And he says, you got to understand what's going to work and not work in some of these campaigns. Because I guess at this stage, doctors, all the parties, if they can throw a Hail Mary pass here, they're going to try. And we said that in 05, didn't we, when, uh, well, it was an NDP member, actually, uh, that complained to the RCMP about the income trust thing, and they wanted the finance minister then, uh, Ralph Goodale, investigated. And, and the RCMP commissioner weighed in about four days before the election and said, we're investigating them. And I don't know if that turned the election, but it certainly didn't help the liberals. Uh, and, and I guess if you can get a wedge issue like that this late into the campaign, but I'm not so sure that there's an appetite for that sort of thing now. I think that's right. I mean, it's different if it's new information. If it comes out of nowhere as a new story, and then what ends up happening is even if, the, even if it's not the end of the world for the government, it would throw them off their game. Like, I mean, if you can imagine the counterfactual, like, imagine if we just found out about this S&P Lavalin thing now. Okay, well, <laughs> now everybody's got to pivot, and, mm-hmm. and the government has to take time figuring out talking points, how to deal with it, how they're going to manage it, what true, what's true they're going to say. And, like, even if we think back to the 2019 election, when um, earlier in the campaign, the... Prime Minister's blackface photos were released from previously in his life. That just made the campaign scramble, and that took over. And then they kind of, the Trudeau camp had a hard time finding their footing again because they had to respond. And they weren't getting questions about the things they wanted to talk about, they were getting questions about that. Whereas this just doesn't have, you know, the, the feel of a new bomb that's just starting to explode. This is stuff that people already know. And so they might learn more about it if they read the book, but that's not going to be something that makes up their mind, I don't think, on the 20th. Do you see some of these regions that we've talked about starting to, to solidify here? And, and I want to start, in, well, your neck of the woods out in the in the, in the eastern provinces, out in the Maritimes, uh, which has traditionally been a relatively strong place for the Liberals in the past. Uh, there was some concern about some of those seats in play, especially after Ian Rankin was defeated in the provincial election a few weeks back. Uh, do, you, do you see a whole change, a wholesale change going on there, or is, is it just going to be a, a little bit of this, a little bit of that? I think probably the latter. I don't get a big sense that things are going to change a lot around here. Like, I mean, there's always a couple of ridings that you're not really sure. It could go one way or the other. And there's, there are ridings here that kind of, that aren't necessarily a safe riding for either party, even the liberals. Like, there are some that have gone back and forth and, you know, could, you know, will again at some point. But I don't get the sense of a really strong, loud uh, momentum for change here. I find that some of the conservative uh, campaigns are quite quiet. Uh, the conservative ca- uh, candidates aren't necessarily participating in candidates' debates, for instance, which might be just an indication that, you know, the, the conservatives aren't going to spend a lot of time trying to flip writings that they know are going to stay liberal and they're just going to, you know, they'll put up their candidate, they'll run a, they'll run a competition, but they're not necessarily going to overextend. There's a, a one riding in Nova Scotia that's conservative. I expect it'll stay that way. There's a few in New, New Brunswick, but I, uh, yeah, I think we're probably going to return a strong result for the Liberals, but it's not going to be a 2015 sweep, like 2015 like sweep, like it was then. 
Uh, two French language debates, uh, a lot of concern about what was going on in Quebec, very much in play. Uh, and by the way, we should characterize, and I think you mentioned this to us uh, a couple of weeks ago, Doctor, when we talk about the French vote, uh, it's not just the province of Quebec. It's northern Ontario, right. well, we mentioned New Brunswick. I mean, there are Francophones in Manitoba all over the place who pay attention to these sorts of issues. But uh, Mr. Blanchet simply has, has uh, staked his flag there and wants to hang on to what he's got. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has spent a fair bit of time in Quebec these days, uh, trying mm-hmm. to increase that seat total. Uh, how do you see that one playing out? Yeah, like definitely Quebec is is somewhere where all the leaders are focused on possibly having a chance at either flipping a riding or they want to make sure that they're hanging on to what they have. Like Jagmeet Singh, I think, has a lot of potential because when we think back to 2011, when Leighton formed the official opposition, which was, you know, obviously the, the absolute success point in the history of the NDP federally, he did it largely on the support of Quebec, who, you know, he was able, by virtue of, of saying the right things about Quebec's place in Confederation and being sensitive to those concerns and appealing to Quebecers on a personal level, I think. And then also, um, you know, he, the NDP share space ideologically with the Bloc Québécois in terms of the support for the welfare state and the role that government plays in your life. And so... There is some, some movement there. There is some potential movement that could happen towards Jigmeet Singh from the bloc if he's able to appeal. And he's got, you know, uh, Ruth Ellen Brasso is running again. Mm-hmm. There could be, I mean, I don't think it's going to be an orange crush again or anything, but I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if Singh picked up a few seats. I wouldn't be surprised if O'Toole lost a few. And, I mean, we saw in the French language debates that Trudeau was really focused on Blanchette. And, as you say, there are French speakers all over the country but Blanchet's focus is Quebec. And, you know, sure, he, like, there's no votes for him outside Quebec. And so even though there, you know, Trudeau has to think about the French-speaking voters who are living outside Quebec, Blanchet doesn't. And so it's a very, you know, interesting to see them have those conversations in the French language debates, given that their constituencies are totally different. But, I mean, I think Blanchet even got, you know, he had a successful night even in the English debate, you know, by really taking the other leaders to task over whether or not they they are protecting Quebec. And so, you know, just really interesting to see how those those debates played out. Now, looking at the poll numbers, I don't know. I don't, like, it, it doesn't look like the debates had, you know, produced much for anybody except Trudeau. It looks like Singh lost a couple of points and, and O'Toole's stuck around 30. I got a minute left, and I got to ask you this because there's a, a lot of speculation about the the People's Party uh, with Maxime Bernier. Uh, they're last I saw five and a half or six percent point, uh, which you know they're not a threat as far as you know they're not going to form government. But are they going to be a factor? I mean, t- the the tendency right now, Doctor, seems to be that anybody who's considering or is is now intent on voting for that party, it's probably a vote they're taking away from the Conservatives. Is it that cut and dried? I mean, that seems to be what it looks like as, as O'Toole is pulling, um, he's trying to define himself as a progressive, he's trying to pitch a larger tent, and so he's leaning in a direction that may find some of the, the farther right in the t- conservative tent feeling left out, and maybe they will look to find a home in, in uh, Maxine Bernier's party. Whether or not that actually has an effect you know, on a riding-to-riding basis, I'm not sure. It depends, right? Like if, if it's a really strong conservative riding and they're winning by more than enough, and they lose a few points to the PPC, it doesn't matter. If it was a riot, and conversely, if it was a riding, the Conservatives weren't going to win anyway. It doesn't matter. It's a question of whether in those close ridings, the PPC could actually drain support enough that it starts to affect O'Toole's outcome. 
Well, uh, a lot can happen, but that you know that old cliche that a week is a lifetime in politics. So I guess we've yeah, got one more lifetime yeah. to go, Doctor. Uh, great to have you back on the show today. Thanks so much. I know we'll talk again soon. Take care. Sounds great. Thank you, Doctor Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We already know about the Delta variant, of course, and that's the dominant uh, variant in uh, dealing with uh, the COVID-19, this latest incarnation of it anyway, and that's bad enough. But uh, we've also found out within the last week or two uh, that there is yet another variant uh, that, uh, well, is going to be somewhat problematic. Uh, Stephanie DeWitt-Orr is an associate professor in the Health Sciences and Biology Department at Wilfrid Laurier University. She guested on Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zampert earlier this morning, and uh, she was asked uh, why this moo variant, that's MU, the MU variant, is an interest to doctors and to researchers in both sides of the Atlantic these days. The reason why MU made it to um, the variant of interest category is because on paper, it, it has a, it's acquired um, the ability to immune evade, uh, similar to the beta variant of concern. And it also has the ability to transmit. It looks like on paper has the ability to transmit similarly to Delta. So it should be a concern, and I guess it is a concern when you're looking at the way that uh, the uh, uh, experts are looking at what's going on here. So what kind of an impact is this going to have? And as we head in towards winter, and that is inevitable, by the way, and leaves are starting to turn already, uh, you've got that concern, the possibility of the Delta variant, which is still spreading. Now you've got the Mu variant, which is a, an area of concern. And uh, in case you had forgotten, uh, we're heading into flu season. And let's tie all of these things together and just find out what kind of a, a, an autumn and what kind of a winter it's going to be. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Thomas Tenkate, who is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Uh, always a pleasure, Thomas. Thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. I mean, I'll get to the flu thing in just a couple of seconds because that's important. I don't want to diminish that. But let's talk a little bit about the, this mu variant right now. Uh, when when we started hearing about the Delta variant, we just, oh, my God, here we go again. It's stronger. It's more transmissible. Uh, what are we looking at with mu here? And, and is this, uh, as they say in, 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 the, in the spy world, a clear and present danger? Or is it just something we just need to keep our eye on at this stage? Yeah, yeah definitely the... Like the, the sort of history of it is that it was initially identified in Colombia uh, mm-hmm. earlier this year in January, and now it's spread to something like 31 countries. Uh, it's really the dominant variant in Colombia, and it took over from the Delta variant. So, it, and they, they describe it as outcompeting it. So, so, what that means is basically its characteristics meant that it was able to be more easily transmitted and then. Uh, infect in essence infect more people in Colombia. Uh, it does have some characteristics that that uh, as you described in that intro that that mean that it you know it looks like it could be uh, more in, infectious uh, but uh, what we're seeing is that it doesn't seem to be as easily transmitted as the delta variant. So it means that uh, at this stage the delta for us the delta variant is still the dominant one. Uh, but uh, we have to really keep an eye on this one. Uh, you know, there, oh, from the from a from the variance perspective, the uh, what what makes one more dominant than another is is uh, there's three areas. One is how easily it can can it be transmitted? Uh, does it cause more severe illness than than its competitors? And also, uh, 
how effective are vaccines or other treatments against it. And so, so at this stage, the Delta variant is winning on all those three categories, but uh, the Mu variant might uh, uh, be able to uh, sort of be uh, more effective in regard to evading uh, vaccines or other treatments. Professor, how did these things start in the first place? I mean, you know, we, we had COVID-19, we had and now the Delta, and now we've got mu going on. Uh, is, is this a, a, an ongoing process right now? Mutation is, is just a regular occurrence with these things? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the original sort of COVID uh, virus, what they now describe as the wild virus, uh, then we've had uh, variants that uh, you know they they're using the 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 sim you know the Greek letters the alpha beta gamma delta you know we're up to mu now uh, they're they're all variants or, or basically mutations that are are becoming uh, dominant in in particular areas and so there, at at this stage we're you know around the world there's there's been thousands of different variants uh, and what are mutations where the basically the virus is mutating in a way to try and uh, be more easily transmitted and and uh, sort of you know it basically it's it's its role in life is to try and infect as many people as possible and the way it does that is by keep 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 mutating so it can uh, infect more people and so so that's what's happening around the world it, it just means but from a from our perspective you know to, to our local conditions might mean that certain variants take hold more than others and and for us the the delta variant is the one that's taken over from from what was previously the alpha variant is is there an inevitability here that the the the, well then in this case the mu variant uh is going to continue to grow or or you mentioned it's it's competing right now uh with the delta variant uh and and the delta variant is dominating at this stage uh is there a possibility that the mu variant may not become much of a factor at all yeah, yeah, definitely. The you know we, we we're still seeing the uh, you know the other variants, the 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 alpha and the beta uh, as well, uh, and and uh, what are the variants of concern? And then they put this one under the title of variant under investigation or variant of interest because they're saying, well, you know, it, it has some characteristics that mean that it potentially could start to outcompete the the delta variant, but at this stage. You know, it, it isn't, uh, and, and, and until it starts to take hold more, we won't call it a variant of concern. And so, so at this, you know, it's it's one of those things where, depending on various local factors uh, and uh, combined with its its own characteristics, pr- predominantly for this one, and and all of these variants, uh, if you think of them as being like a little landmine with lots of spikes, it's it's basically the proteins on the spikes that, and the spikes help. Uh, you know, uh, penetrate into into our cells, and so so it's that sort of that combination of of genetic factors in regard to the proteins on these spikes that that make the difference or, or characteristic of the actual variant itself, and and how easily it can either be uh, infect someone or how how it can uh, be affected it, it itself affected by the by the vaccine so so and and you know until we uh sort of know more about it uh you know it's definitely something one of it's definitely one of the variants we have to keep an eye on let me ask you about the the efficacy of the vaccines because that's that's raised every time we talk about a new uh variant in this case the mu variant uh if I understand it with my rudimentary knowledge I mean well I think we all know more about vaccines and 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 
you know, all sorts of things like that, coronaviruses than we ever wanted to know about, but it's our life, I guess, these days. But the the vaccines that we're dealing with, uh, Pfizer, whatever it might be, were basically, I guess, based on, on the alpha variant, and, and we've moved down the list, as you mentioned, considerably. Uh, at, at what point do you get concerned that, well, these vaccines may not be effective against this, or, or is that is is that always going to be a factor? The vaccine is the vaccine, no matter what the variant is. Hmm. Yeah, or, yeah uh, it really, yeah, like, like as we, you know, if, if people think about, and you talked previously about the seasonal flu, you know, mm-hmm. each year there was a, a different flu shot because the new flu variant was substantially different enough from the previous one to, to, in, to mean that we needed a new, new vaccine for it. And so, so at this stage, the, uh, the current vaccines, uh, the COVID vaccines, are, 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 they're finding that they are uh, effective against the, 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 the variants of concern that we've had so far. But uh, this new variant, uh, based on the initial, uh, say, lab work that's been done, is showing that it, it might it might be the first one where that where if it does take over, uh, it could be the one that means that we might have to have a uh, you know a, a booster shot that is specifically uh, reformulated to 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 address to, to address it. Uh, so so definitely you know as as the, as the viruses keep mutating and we have these different variants, depending on how different they are in regard to their their, their their own genetics and and, and this these this aspect about the, the types of proteins they have uh, means that uh, we we have to sort of keep seeing how effective the current vaccine is and and that discussion's ongoing isn't it I mean you know the people that got boosters when they were kids I mean against rubella and smallpox and all these sorts of other things I, I guess there's a body of work there to determine yeah they're they're good for X number of years and then you probably have to get a booster. Uh, we're still working, I guess, on, on how that's going to impact the coronavirus. So the the idea of this third shot or booster shot, I guess, Professor, uh, seems to be gaining a lot more steam, especially with the discovery of more variants. Yeah, yeah. So so there's you know there's there's a couple of aspects with the the booster shot. One is the uh, well, one is you know how long is the current uh, vaccine sort of how long does is it effective in regard to how long is does it. Uh, allow our bodies to have a sufficient level of antibodies that that you know respond to the uh, to any infection of, of the virus that and so so you know that that there's that aspect there's the also the aspect that you know there's some people who were in the initially when they were were vaccinated mightn't have uh, produced enough antibodies for 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 a variety of reasons mainly uh, sort of underlying medical reasons and so so their their level of uh, sort of their their own body's response is not as good as everyone else's, and so so there's there's the potential for you know and that they're they're the audience that they're looking at a, at a at a booster for initially, uh, and then we've also got the other aspect of a booster in terms of the virus has changed itself, and so uh, so changed sufficiently that that the current uh, vaccines aren't aren't effective against it. So so there, there's those three sort of categories of of potential uh, reasons for, for boosters. Let's uh, get into the flu because I don't want to diminish that this is very important as the flu season. I get a flu shot every year and I will again this year. Uh, last year, we were, I think, shocked an awful lot of us to see that, uh, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada anyway, uh, the number of cases, reported cases of flu was down considerably. Actually, they only recorded 69 influenza detections. Uh, usually, they're around 52,000, but 
there's some conjecture as to why that number was so low. Uh, and it, I guess it gets into the realm of uh, cases that weren't reported at all. To, uh, you know, people that just had symptoms and said, well, I'm not going to bother talking about this. But I, I think there is a, a general consensus, though, isn't there, Professor, that uh, the precautions we were taking last year for COVID, i.e. masking, social distancing, et cetera, uh, probably had an impact on the number of fl- influenza cases. Yeah, I, I agree. They, you know, th- those measures are going to be very effective against uh, the seasonal flu. Uh, like, I think the flu... What you know, what we've sort of seen now is you know, the more we know about uh, the COVID uh, virus is that you know initially we were sort of really worried about surfaces and and how viable mm-hmm. it was on surfaces, whereas that that is one of the things for the seasonal flu that it is it still uh, is you know it, it's quite uh, viable once it you know gets onto surfaces. So often we're getting it by you know sort of someone sneezing and the and the particles go onto a surface and like a handrail or something and then we touch that and then we we touch your own face from that perspective so so i think uh overall that definitely that the measures such as social distancing and masking uh are going to have a bigger big impact but but for seasonal flu the issue of uh you know sort of hand washing and uh you know using using uh wipes and you know uh, and gels and whatever to keep your keep your hands clean and uh you know particularly when you're in uh in sort of on public transport or or in you know public settings you know that that's also uh, a big big one too uh, maybe you know more a little bit more important than than the, than the covid virus uh but but it but, but all those measures are still very effective and and it's not unexpected that we would have had a dropping dropping cases talk to us about what our bodies are like uh for instance if you were to say well flu season i get the flu every year so what i get sick for a day or two and i feel kind but when we're down and out like that and we're battling even a flu bug does that make us more prone to something like like covid in other words are our defenses weakened to that point that we could actually end up with both a flu and and perhaps a a a variant uh yeah you know definitely your you know your body you know is when it when it uh when it detects this sort of invade invader, you know, it goes into overdrive in regard to to responding to that. And uh, you know, definitely, you know, when it's focused on doing that for one, you know, it, it if you get infected by by another, it it uh, you know it it may, puts a lot of stress on your body to to be able to respond to to multiples. Uh, and so 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 definitely, if you know, if you're under the weather because of the flu. Uh, seasonal flu and, and you know it it, it uh, I you know I definitely think that you know you're at at uh, at uh, more you know sort of more vulnerable to 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 other to other things as well so so definitely you know that they're they're all that they're all important in regard to uh, you know sort of trying to protect yourself against the uh, you know being affected by the you know very various range of uh, uh, viruses that are that we're getting through, you know, predominantly through through the air, you know, breathing breathing in or uh, uh, or, or touching different surfaces. And, and the same concerns that we had last year, uh, I guess, are certainly in play here. Uh, there are some people that are, are adversely affected by flu, frail, elderly, those with pre-existing conditions, etc., that that may be more vulnerable. Uh, and again, there's the concern about about ERs and and hospitals filling up uh, with people that may have to be uh, bedridden because of this. And then on top of that, with these rising numbers of COVID, uh, the potential there for something uh, pretty ugly could happen. So we really have to be on our guard, don't we? Oh yeah, definitely. The you know uh, you know moving into the sort of the flu season, you know uh, you know in the in the winter is 
uh, is you know puts an extra extra strain on things. And and I think uh, you know initially you know as we're seeing the case numbers go up at the moment, uh, you know that it's sort of coming at a time in the in the the life cycle of or the time frame of the uh, the pandemic where I think you know the most people in the you know in the general public are, are pretty much over it all that you know they want it to all go away and so they, they you know i think people are easing up a bit on on mask wearing and uh you know the, the hand washing and and those sorts of things and and sort of maybe not being as cautious in regard to social distancing particularly because of the uh you know so many people have been vaccinated and and i you know what i'd sort of remind people is that you know vaccination plays one role and it's an important role but but to sort of get a handle on and control the uh, the spread, we still need those other measures to be still still in place, and, and it's really that combination of measures that helps us uh, get on top of it. Professor Thomas Tenkate uh, from uh, Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, as always, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I got to talk about what's going on uh, around hospitals here in Ontario over the last couple of days. I mean, this is just totally bizarre. Uh, some high-ranking Ontario politicians and prominent healthcare organizers are now issuing warnings ahead of a number of protests that are, have taken place and are expected to take place at hospitals across Canada. Rob Westgate has some details. An organization calling itself Canadian Frontline Nurses posted notices of, quote, silent vigils, unquote, expected to take place in all 10 provinces, saying they are meant to critique public health measures put in place to curb the spread of COVID-19. Organizers of the demonstration say they want to take a stand against what they call tyrannical measures and government overreach. However, the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and Ontario Medical Association issued a joint statement strongly condemning the planned disruptions. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Well, if you saw any of the video of these over the weekend, these are not silent protests. Uh, there's some insane stuff that's going on here. Uh, and, and people are legitimately worried and concerned, as they should be, for their own safety and for the safety of doctors, nurses, and patients. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Amit Arya, who is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care and a palliative care physician. Uh, doctor, it's always a pleasure. I wish we were uh, talking under better circumstances. I, 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 I'm flummoxed as to what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I can't agree with you more, Bill. I'm I'm really very disturbed, too, more disturbed than I could even put into words. And, uh, you know, I understand that people have the right to protest, but once if this protest is leading to the obstruction of care for vulnerable patients who are sick, or when people are abusing health workers who are caring for the sick, we can see that these people have just lost their way. I mean, we need to be respectful of hospitals, um, which should be an oasis of care and compassion. Well, and that's the twisted logic that I think is at play here. And I mean, we've seen some bizarre stuff. I, you know, when, you know, one president suggesting you inject bleach, and then you got some other people here that are using some deworming toxin, I guess, to try to. And uh, that's that's the you know the the weird thing that's going on. But why, in God's name, and I'm not. It's a rhetorical question, I guess. Would they figure that let's go protest in front of the the very people that are saving lives during this pandemic? Uh, the last time I checked, the doctors, the nurses, and certainly the patients are not the ones that said government policy those are the people at queen's park yeah so you're absolutely right bill um there needs to be a safety zone outside of hospitals and that needs to be done immediately 
um, they need to take action once again to protect vulnerable patients. I mean, I have people who are getting cancer chemotherapy coming in to seek care. I have people who are older adults with dementia, family members come in, uh, you know, coming in to see their, you know, their loved ones who may be at the end of life, perhaps at the very last time. Uh, people who are pregnant in labor coming in to seek care. So this is absolutely the wrong place to target. It should not be targeted. And if you're upset at what, you know, what policies are out there, absolutely. I think we should all have a right to peaceful protest and that should be outside the government. So Queen's Park would really be the place to go. It's, 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 I, I just, I'm over, you know, when I see some of this stuff uh, and I, I know people and you and I've talked about this in the past. I mean, there are some, I guess, consequences that we really can't do a whole lot about, about the pandemic and lockdowns. And, and one of those that you and I have talked about in the past, of course, are the number of elective surgeries that have been put off and other treatments that have been put off because of this. And, and that's regrettable. But now they're trying to make up for that. They're trying to get back, back on track. Uh, I was just talking to one individual who's actually due for a procedure later on this week. Uh, and he's very nervous about having to go through, uh, to use his phrase, doctor, I don't want to have to run through a gauntlet of, of crazy people to try to get into the hospital for the treatment that I need for my, my condition. It's not supposed to be this way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. I'm hearing from, you know, other hospitals in Ontario, sort of similar stories about patients where patients are being told to arrive early to plan for disruptions in traffic, uh, you know, perhaps not being able to find parking in an ideal location. And that's, absolutely not appropriate. There needs to be a law that designates sort of once again a safety zone outside hospitals um, and, 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 I didn't, and I think the time is now for our politicians here in Ontario to step up, protect health workers and sick patients. Once again, we can protect people's right to protest but when, when your activism is actually leading you to scream at patients and harass health workers, it's clearly misguided and you're on the wrong side. I know that the, the one group that uh, that I reported just talked about there was uh, concerned nurses, and I'm not quite sure exactly who those people are, uh, but they said they were concerned about some of the policy decisions. And, and, and again, those are reflective of what we get from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, as you mentioned, and certainly the, the elected officials and governments at Queen's Park uh, in situations like that. But when I see some of the, the pictures and some of the video of this stuff, Doctor, uh, an awful lot of the people that are out there yelling and screaming with placards don't seem to be talking policy. They, they just they don't want vaccination. They don't want vaccination passports. Uh, it seems to be a single-minded issue at this stage for an awful lot of these people. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a reminder to everyone how we, uh, I mean, as health workers, we haven't just been battling, you know, this deadly virus, but we've been actually battling a lot of misinformation that is circulating out there. And, um, you know, through that, we've still been treating people, whether they've been vaccinated or unvaccinated with COVID-19. We still care for people, even if they hate us. And that will always continue. But I think we need to do more. Um, you know, and I think, you know, by saying we, I mean, the government actually needs to do more to get people vaccinated. Unfortunately, with these anti-vax protests, the bigger picture here, Bill, is being missed. These anti-vaxxers are actually just a very small minority of people who are unvaccinated. I mean, here in Ontario, I can give you an example that we have 380,000 people who are still unvaccinated. And those people are, of course, at much higher risk of serious illness and death from COVID-19. And many of these people still have access issues. They still have simple questions. They're not violent. They're not showing up in front of hospitals. So we need to still keep our eye on the fourth wave which is the bigger problem here, and actually get as many people, you know, vaccinated as possible. Well, and that's the irony. I mean, you know, these, these very people that are not vaccinated are making themselves more prone uh, to, well, the Delta variant, maybe the Mu variant, which is on the horizon. It's already, there are legitimate cases in Ontario already. 
And, and as we've been talking about earlier in the program, Doctor, we're heading into flu season right now. Uh, that's a pretty ugly trifecta to have to deal with. And if you get ill and if you get sick, uh, those very people that you're protesting against uh, right now are the ones that are probably going to save your life. Yeah, and, and we'll continue to do so. Um, uh, like I'll, I'll just be very clear. I mean, there's no conspiracy here or there's no hoax. Uh, around COVID-19 will always be there to care for people regardless of their vaccination status and regardless of people hate us. We just want to save people's lives. And that's our only intention. And honestly, even when I see anti-vax protests, of course, I'm very upset at the location and the harassment of my colleagues and, you know, harassment of vulnerable patients and family members who are simply trying to come into hospital. But once again, uh, other than that, I have nothing but compassion for, for this group of people. And that might sound odd, Bill, because I think a lot of people are angry at anti-vaxxers and are blaming them. But I will say again, Shaming and blaming is actually not the right approach. We just need to create that safety zone and protect our hospitals, uh, you know, protect these places where, where, you know, you know, where people are just simply coming in to seek care. But then we need to deal with why people are so angry and upset and deal with the misinformation to get people vaccinated. I've learned a long time ago in this business that I'm in, Doctor, that uh, it's it's very, very difficult to try to apply logic to illogical uh, decisions. Uh, but I've, I've tried to get my head around this. Why picking hospitals uh, to, to stage these protests? And, and what that has to do with vaccinations or not vaccinations uh, is... is where there's a huge disconnect here but and, and for that to pick that and i understand i mean i look at i've talked to a number of people who have been involved in labor organizations for instance over the years and they say yeah we want to maximize our, our protests so we want to make sure that we get visibility i get that uh but this is the wrong place i mean these are people that need you know the frail the elderly other people my concern is i you know talking to some of the folks in, uh, in healthcare around here uh they're concerned about staffing levels again i mean and you've talked to us in the past about burnout in many of these facilities because of the, right. the last 16 or 17 months. Uh, some of these people now are going to say, well, I don't want to cross those lines. I'm not going to work today. Uh, and that's going to have an impact on, on staffing levels within the hospital itself. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's where, I mean, we, we need the government to come back, the Ontario government, to reconvene the legislature and take action on this issue, which is, you know, endangering people who are working in hospitals as well as patients, uh, you know, and I'll add another sort of, uh, you know, part of these protests. Of course, I'm saying it again because I don't want anybody to feel that they can't express their opinion, which is a fundamental right in this country. But once again, we don't need to do it outside of a hospital. It's not appropriate in that location. And I'll add something else, Bill. Uh, I'm also seeing this frightening rhetoric emerge with these um, with these um, protests. I mean, some of it is violent. I just saw this morning that there was somebody who was going to go to the protests and sort of saying that they would bring guns and break into the hospital or raid a hospital to prove that COVID was fake. So obviously violence should not be tolerated in any way, shape or form. I think we can all agree on that. And the other part of this that is absolutely shameful that I will add is that there is an undercurrent of actually racism and anti-supremacism. Actually, no, maybe I phrased it wrong. It's not an undercurrent. It's actually quite overt. Where we're seeing some of these protests, people are holding up swastikas. That, you know, they're comparing um, vaccine mandates to 1930s Germany. And obviously, that that is something that's absolutely awful and shameful. And I stand with my, you know, you know, with many of my colleagues who belong to the Jewish community. I see patients who are Holocaust survivors. I stand with all of them in condemning that unequivocally. Well, yeah, it, it, it tells me that the, the, the rhetoric that we're hearing here about while we're concerned about policy is, is, is a pretty lame excuse. I mean, they, this is bordering on anarchy, and these are people that just are, are, are trying to just get out there and, and stir, 
you know, the pot, and, and it has nothing at all to do with government policies or vaccinations. I, I've, I've got a bit of a, a, a problem and I guess a discomfort with that term about mandatory vaccinations because uh, as, you know, as we've discovered on this program, the government policy that's in place right now is not mandatory. Mandatory means, you know, you get this or we're going to hold you down and make sure you get. Uh, you can choose not to, as these people probably have, some of them have. Uh, it's just that there are going to be certain ramifications to the choice, just as, you know, it, life is all about choices. But, you know, the choices once made, you have to deal with the ramifications of that. Nobody's forcing anybody to get vaccinated. They're encouraging it, but they're not forcing them to. So for them to be going off the deep end about this is, is really, uh, I, I think, misunderstanding exactly what the intent is here yeah and and you know speaking about vaccine certificates specifically i mean where we sort of limit freedom of movement and sort of want to limit uh, unvaccinated people from entering uh indoor locations i mean the government actually already limits our freedom of movement bill like i can't cross the border without a passport i can't drive without a driver's license i can't come into work without my ID badge so people know who I am. So this is nothing different. And we're in the middle of a global pandemic where we want to obviously slow down the fourth wave and we want to incentivize people to get vaccinated. So the vaccine certificate, and obviously we've talked about vaccine mandates bill, I believe, for health workers, for educators. These are kind of no-brainer type of policies which are meant to protect everyone. Well, I, I just fear that these people are looking for confrontation. They're not looking for changing a policy or anything else. And, and it's it's taking it to the nth degree. And God knows we've seen, especially in this last year, uh, whether it's in Washington or Ottawa or, or Toronto or any other number of places, Doctor, how this can get out of hand so very quickly. And uh, we don't want to see that happen in this situation. And, and what's even more troubling, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, is with this happening, and with the attention being paid to this, we're taking our eye off the ball. Uh, you know, we've still got a, 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 a variant out there, we another one that we're dealing with now, too. And we've still got a lot of work to do to try to get over the hump. I mean, you know, the experts and medical officers of health and others are telling us this is going to be a pretty tough winter. And uh, we've got to understand that. And, you know, and, and, and understand the fact that we've got to stay with what we're supposed to be doing here, vis v masking, and I know some people are even concerned about that, and certainly with vaccinations. Because uh, if we don't, uh, you know, we don't want to go back, I think, to the days, those ugly days where we had overcrowded ICUs. Uh, and the numbers are indicating that's still a possibility, if not a probability. Oh, yeah. So you're exactly right. I mean, the numbers are predicting that, um, you know, we, we may reach thousands of cases, actually, you know, by October. And our ICUs may actually surpass what they were in the third wave by October if we don't take action. So that's absolutely what we have to do. We have to, of course, you know, keep our hospitals safe once again, but we have to move on beyond this. I'll say it again. There are 380,000 people in Ontario who are over 60. Sorry, I missed that point when I mentioned that stat before, Bill. 380,000 people over 60 who are not fully vaccinated. And these are not the people who are showing up to these protests, as we can clearly see. We need to make sure we have a targeted vaccine campaign, get out some positive science-based information to counter the misinformation that's circulating, perhaps even go to door-to-door -door offering people the vaccine, because many people don't have that ride. Some people don't have internet. They may have questions and get as many many people vaccinated as possible. That should be our priority at this time. And I fear, like you, once again, I mean, with especially the media, we're focusing all attention on this very vocal minority of people that is unvaccinated. We have to also look at what's going, going on with the fourth wave as our priority. Doctor, we want to thank you once again for taking some time for us today. I know it's a, a very busy time for you.
as always, but uh, it's a message that needs to get out there. And, and I, I totally agree. I think it's time our elected officials did more than just send tweets out this. They're going to have to take some action on this uh, to make sure that the people that are, are putting their lives on the line to save lives uh, are going to have the protection that they need. Uh, certainly, it's a story that we're going to continue to follow. Thanks again, Doctor. Really appreciate you talking to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Dr. Amit Aria, who is the uh, co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, and of course he's a palliative care physician. And, uh, and I feel for the people that are, are trying to go to work and trying to do their jobs. Uh, and it's not just dealing with people that have you know COVID, the people that have cardiac problems, people that are dealing with diabetes and kidney issues. That's, what, that's who's in those hospitals, people. Not policymakers, people who are ill and who need help, need medical assistance. And I just I, I can't understand what twisted logic you're using to determine that that's a good place to, to do a protest like this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.